Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be here. And Haley Kanath. Hello, hello. We have a killer show, as always. Before we jump into the news, uh, I did want to just tick off one interesting item that just came across the wire before we logged on here. It's a very, it's a story that's very of the moment because the University of Michigan Law School has decided to ban the use of chat GPT and other AI tools for its admissions essays. Ooh. And, you know, it kind of, I was interested in that just because it kind of combines a couple of interesting hobby horses for us. We do talk about law school on here and we've talked about AI tools place in the legal industry. And now, you know, sort of some corners of academia are trying to lay down a marker here as well. I'm so fascinated by this development in particular because a lot of universities are moving to ban the use by students to the extent they can actually monitor that. But usually it's in, you know, subject matter style essays. Yeah. Uh, this is a little different. What what would people put in as their prompt? Please write an essay about why I'm excited to be a lawyer. And it just feels <laughs> a little weird. Yeah. I mean, it, in my opinion, it would display a pretty glaring lack of imagination, not being able to like say something about, you know, why you want to be a lawyer, or why you want to study at the University of Michigan. I will say they, uh, they appear to be the first major law school to make a rule like this. I did think there was a really funny quote. Uh, this is in a Reuters story from the senior assistant dean, Sarah Zierfoss. Because like you said, Amber, like it is, she admits here in this story that it's basically on the honor system. And she just gave kind of a funny quote that's like very telling of some of academia these days. She said, will I be able to enforce it? No. But in general, I'm relying on the honor of people who apply in a million different ways. So this is no different. Wow. Uh, so it's, you're, you're on the honor I mean, system. That's true. If you want to be a Wolverine uh, and study law. But <laughs> it's you're very on honest of her. Um, yeah. But I, I'm not sure how effective it is to admit that. Although I do think, we are probably going to get to a place in society where the smart admissions officers are going to test out their own prompts, see what oh, the, sure. the, yeah. the, the AI spits back. And if they see things that match up too closely, then they know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, I mean we'll probably, I mean, the AI, you know, I'm sure you can say, hey, AI, did AI write this? I don't know. I would never. <laughs> well, I would never lawyers trouble tried with that, that out. But. And the answer the AI gave was, of course, these citations are real. Don't worry about it. That's right. Yeah. Yes. How could I forget? <laughs> Goodness. Anyway, I'll also throw out that <laughs> while you said that was a, you know, there's a lack of imagination that must uh, underlie using AI for an essay prompt. I would, I'm not advocating for it, but I would say writing essays like that is like the worst part of applying for anything. So I get, I could, I get it. I get why you'd want to do that. Yeah, that's true. I don't, but my thing is, I don't like doing that because, like, I consider myself to be, like, a humble person. And I don't like writing about, like, anything that's, like, self-promoting, even though, like, you can write that in different ways. But, yeah. Oh, no. The temptation will be there. And people will definitely do this. And I'm sure they have already. But Honestly, yeah. just totally different take from me. I love writing essays like oh, that. I love writing right. anything. Of course you do, I'm into Amber. It. The, the, the <laughs> resident Hermione Granger of this podcast <laughs> has made her opinion known. Okay, anyway, well, yeah. you know, if I'm going to get called Hermione, let me go first with my news story, like the A-plus student that I always yeah, long please. to be. Please. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things where it's another day, another Tesla lawsuit to talk about. Yeah. But this one's actually a deal to settle a pay suit that was inked by the Tesla board. 
So on Monday of this week, the Tesla board agreed to return $735 million through a combination of stocks, options, and cash to settle this stockholder suit, accusing them of basically raking in these outrageous compensation packages that cost the company hundreds of millions of dollars. All right. We all love talking about executive pay, but I am very curious what these shareholders consider to be an outrageous compensation package because I could look at the uh, executive compensation package for any given company and compare it to my own compensation package. And <laughs> they all seem consider outrageous. Consider it to be rather outrageous. So yeah. where's the line here? So the word outrageous, I would like to point out, is from the filing of the plaintiffs here. So that's where that's coming from. It's not a legal term <laughs> not, per se. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Not <But> yet. <laughs> they have some stuff to back it up. So attorneys for the shareholders called it one of the largest derivative settlements in the history of the Delaware Chancery Court. So just to put this in perspective, this is very big. The lawsuit was brought in 2020, accusing the company of handing out compensation packages to directors that were valued at an average of $8.7 million for just 2018. That was more than 29 times higher than the average for S&P 500 index company boards. So there is an argument to be made there that if it's your highly concentrated, more high than, yeah, than other similar boards, then, yeah, it is out- allegedly outrageous. The pension fund that brought the suit said the director's compensation was, quote, demonstrably unmoored from independent stockholder checks. And they went on to say that the directors were, quote, poised to continue this unrelenting avarice into the indefinite future. So they were not only worried. (laughs) Yeah, they were not only worried about one year. They were saying this was just going to keep going. No lie. I mean, we've already we've we've cited their lawsuit a couple of times here, regardless of before you even get to the merits of of the dispute here unrelenting avarice is a bar. Let me tell you. That <laughs> it is, sure is. AI did not write that one. I'm positive of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's how they characterize it. At the time, Tesla's directors said the suit was cynical. It was opportunistic. They pointed out that the company chose to pay its directors largely in stock options in order to align their interests directly with the companies. The directors also said the suing pension fund was a beneficiary of Tesla's great success. Revenues increased for Tesla from $413 million in 2014 to $24.6 billion in 2019, which I didn't know they had grown that big that fast. Last year, Tesla reported $81.46 billion in revenue. So it's big numbers all around. So that was their basic argument before they decided to settle. So we're here talking about the settlement. Um, let's talk about the contours and the structure of that. You mentioned we're well over $700 million is going to be paid back. Uh, who is paying that money out exactly? And where is it going? And how does it all uh, get structured? Yeah, while they admitted no wrongdoing, the current and former board members are the ones that are paying it back. That includes CEO Elon Musk's brother, Kimball Musk, and media mogul James Murdoch. And now they are set to collectively return the equivalent of that $735 million in past compensation. They've also agreed to permanently forego compensation between 2021 and 2023 and to have their future compensation packages examined by an independent consultant. So there's some safeguards built into the settlement as well. While the suit is now essentially over, and that's how it's going to be resolved, I would like to point out that Elon Musk is also facing a separate lawsuit arguing he should be forced to return the $56 billion he earned as chair of the board. 
That's a role he stepped down from as part of a $20 million settlement with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. And so we still have to wait to see what happens with that one regarding Elon's past compensation. I just want to say uh, it's obviously a very interesting story, and it's the dollar figures alone make it very notable. But the thing that I took away from reading up on this is I didn't know Elon Musk had a brother, and the name Kimball Musk might be the last thing that passes in front of my eyes before I die or something. They're they're just just like, Elon Musk had a brother named Kimball Musk. Goodbye. I, I don't know. It's like very strange to me. To um, me, I, Elon I, and Kimball. It makes me think of um, Kendall on Succession. That's how. That's the vibe I get from it. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah. and that's charitable. Okay. Um, okay. We got. Uh, I'm up next, and uh, we're staying in the tech realm a little bit, but we're not talking uh, a settlement here. This is a very interesting decision from the Ninth Circuit, and we're talking about posting, folks. The posting of images, and more specifically for this story embedding someone else's Instagram post into a whole other post of your own, posting it on another, on another website or, you know, what have you, a postception. So embedding images, you know, from other websites is pretty common practice uh, in, in digital media these days. We don't even really bat an eye at it, but it is a practice that has agitated creators, photographers, copyright holders that basically say it undermines their copyrights on these images. And the Ninth Circuit took a different view this week. It ruled that embedding an Instagram post on another site does not infringe copyrights. And it, in so doing, it expanded um, an existing precedent in this area of the law. But it really did invite a lot more scrutiny of a very divisive issue. And there are reasons to suggest that it may not be over just yet. So there are a few different angles to parse out here. I'm really interested to talk about this and Alex, because where my brain goes, since, you know, we all have you know, news brain over here at Law360 is the idea that a lot of news stories have these kind of embedded posts that sort of illustrate the thing they're talking about. Blog posts do this a lot. Am I thinking about the right kinds of things? What all are we talking about here? Yeah, so the suit that we're talking about today was brought by a pair of photographers who saw their Instagram posts. One was of an image of a Black Lives Matter protest in 2020, and the other was a, a photograph of Hillary Clinton. They were embedded into news articles which, as I said, is, you know, it happens all the time. There was nothing particularly sort of egregious uh, about this instance, but it just is an example of what these photographers say is is a serious threat to their ability to control and profit from the pictures they took. And really kind of at the center of this whole dispute is a 16 year old uh, Ninth Circuit precedent in what's known as the Perfect 10 case. And yes, if you're curious, that case does involve the porn site Perfect Ten. Uh, All right. You can go read about yep. that. I don't want to get lost in the details of that decision. <laughs> it is an important decision, and the reason for that is because that case in 2007 established that internet search engines like, like, like Google, they have the right to post thumbnail versions of another website's images in its uh, search like results pages under the Fair Use Doctrine. So... That case has been controversial since it was handed down, and that really came to the fore in the context of these amicus filings in this new case that was before the Ninth Circuit. The docket saw filings from tech companies like Google, Twitter, Pinterest, several others basically argued that millions of websites use embedding code to display photos that are hosted elsewhere and that the entire contemporary digital environment is based on being able to do that. 
And on the other hand, uh, a bunch of photographers, some quite notable photographers, also filed an amicus brief, you know, saying that other circuits have rejected this perfect 10 precedent or have at least been reluctant to endorse it and think that the sort of the ground is ripe for a rethinking of the way that the law addresses this embedding issue. So what exactly did the Ninth Circuit do with the precedent? What side did it fall on here? Well, here's where it gets pretty significant, and it's imp- an, an important you know, way to look at this as we move forward. So remember that I said that the Perfect 10 decision in 2007, that applied to search engines and the displaying of photos. Like if you can just Google something, and obviously you get a list of websites, and that decision said that Google can do you know, thumbnail images from those websites when it gives you search results. Now, the photographers in this new case said that even if the Perfect 10 decision was rightly adjudicated, it shouldn't apply to the embedding of images on an entirely distinct website, different than just a landing page on a search engine. But that's exactly what the panel endorsed. It basically said that the practice of just embedding an Instagram post on a website does not strip photographers of their rights. Here was the the kind of basic thrust of their analysis. This is from the opinion. Importantly, the embedding website does not store a copy of the underlying image. Rather, embedding allows multiple websites to incorporate content stored on a single server simultaneously. The host server can control whether embedding is available to other websites and what image appears at a specific address. The host server can also delete or replace the image. So they were basically, they weren't buying this idea that just the act of embedding strips you of your ability to sort of profit from your from your work commercially. So in a nutshell, we now have a situation where the Perfect 10 precedent has been expanded from only strictly applying to search engines to now also applying to websites where embedding happens. That is what the Ninth Circuit sort of explicitly did here. You did say earlier that there were already some courts that were pretty dubious about the Perfect 10 precedent, even before it was expanded in this way. So what are we looking at there? Do we have a split in authorities here? Yeah, you know, we've covered enough Supreme Court uh, cert petitions to know that, like, one person's circuit split is another person's, you know, slight differing of, a, of you know, interpretation or, or whatever. So I, I wouldn't call it that quite yet. But one thing to note, and this, this came up a lot in the briefing of this case we're talking about, is that both the First and Seventh Circuits have, they, they haven't said that Perfect Ten was wrongly decided, but they have declined to explicitly endorse it in similar cases. There's also been a few Manhattan judges that have said that the decision is um, perhaps in violation of the Copyright Act or at least in tension with the Copyright Act. So judges be asking questions, at least, um, <laughs> about, about exactly what Perfect 10 means as you know the digital sharing economy gets more robust. And that brings us back to this case regarding Instagram post embedding. So even though the panel ruled against the photographers, they did write that the case raised, quote, serious and well-argued policy concerns about the Perfect 10 precedent. And the opinion also seemed to indicate that it's, it said that Perfect 10, you know, was, was correct. But even if it was wrongly decided, it wrote, quote, we are not free to overrule Perfect 10 outside of an en banc proceeding. Now, if you cover appellate stuff a lot, you know, if you read between the lines, that can sound like a green light to go ask for an en banc review. We don't know yet if that will happen. This was just decided uh, earlier this week. But if that en banc request is made, and depending on how that goes, you could potentially see 
uh, a Supreme Court push when you consider the different approaches that other circuits have taken. So I would say um, it's a very interesting expansion of this precedent, but there are si- there are signs in the tea leaves that would say we we are a long way from over here. Folks, we three are, uh, is this fair to say, pretty chronically online. Uh, I I consider myself to be, you know, it's a problem for sure. I'll take the fifth on that one, but it's not looking good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I want to bring us up to speed on another social media case here, a very controversial one that has made its way to the Fifth Circuit. And the big question is should the federal government be allowed to work with social media companies to combat misinformation? A Texas federal judge says the answer to this question is probably no. And he issued a sweeping preliminary injunction barring employees with a number of federal agencies and the White House from working with social media companies. But the Fifth Circuit just temporarily paused that injunction and the federal government's appeal has been expedited. Love talking about a case that's on a fast track. Uh, before we get too deep into this, though, I think probably you have to tell us about the underlying suit, what's really going on. How did we get in the courts in the first place? So the states of Missouri and Louisiana are uh, who kicked this one off. They sued last year, and they are alleging that the Biden administration has been colluding with or coercing social media platforms in, quote, open and explicitly censorship programs. In particular, the states point to information about the COVID-19 pandemic. They say the government has suppressed posts that suggest things like the virus was leaked from a lab in China or posts that dispute how well a mask mandate works. And the states also said the government wants social media companies to censor overtly political stories like things about Hunter Biden and the election integrity sorts of things. Misinformation, in quotes, and the government's efforts to address that is is really a topic du jour if you spend even, you know, two seconds online these days. And you don't have to look very far to find people complaining about that in any corner of the internet. But it was pretty striking that two states um, founded in, them to, in themselves to sue over it. And from what we've seen so far, it looks like they found a fairly sympathetic ear in this Texas judge. What was the ruling here before we get up to speed on the on the procedural stuff? Yeah, another thing that's that I would call striking is this injunction order was super long and issued on the 4th of July. Yeah, I remember so, reading about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this judge clearly feels passionate enough about this to be out here dropping lengthy orders on our, our fair nation's birthday. This is... District Judge Terry A. Dowdy, and he said that the federal government's attempt to suppress alleged disinformation, particularly about the pandemic, quote, arguably involves the most massive attack on free speech in United States history. Specifically, the judge pointed to phone calls, emails, and press conferences that discuss misinformation about the virus and attempts by the Biden administration to stymie its spread on social media. He said there are examples of videos and posts being removed from YouTube, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, all the big sites. 
including some accounts that were impersonating uh, Dr. Fauci. Of course, we know Dr. Fauci, the former head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Here is a quote from that order. Although the censorship alleged in this case almost exclusively targeted conservative speech, the issues raised herein go beyond party lines. The right to free speech is not a member of any political party and does not hold any political ideology. Okay, so that sets us up with how we've gotten here. I'm very curious about the scope of this injunction. You said the ruling was really long and that this was pretty sweeping. What's covered? Yeah, the injunction bars employees with the White House, the U.S. Department of Justice, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Department of Homeland Security, and a bunch of other agencies that I will spare, spare you all from having to listen to me list off. Basically, it bars all of these agencies from collaborating with social media companies to tackle misinformation. The government has argued that it's overly broad and vague, and the judge's findings are resting on what the government says is a fundamentally erroneous conception of the First Amendment. So I think getting into the government's arguments here is kind of another good way to look at the exact scope of this injunction, because the government is saying the scope is maybe not even, you know, what the judge intended here. So one example, the injunction prohibits, quote, urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing social media platforms in any manner to moderate their content. And the federal government says, well, all right, now that raises a ton of questions. Among those questions, can federal officials respond to a false story on an influential social media account with a public statement or a statement to the platforms hosting the accounts, uh, you know, refuting that uh, false story? Can the government urge the public to not trust the story or the platform that, that it was posted on? Can the government answer unsolicited questions from platforms about whether the story is false? Um, some other potential issues that the government has raised the injunction could apply to law enforcement officials because, of course, you know, the police and, and other law enforcement agencies regularly reach out to Facebook, Instagram, whatever, to report threats or criminal activity. The government says that this could also mean that a White House press secretary wanting to issue a statement in the wake of a natural disaster could run afoul of this injunction. There's just a whole host of issues, according to the government. Yeah, this is a fascinating thing. And we, we are in early days of this lawsuit. We'll talk about what happened next here at the Fifth Circuit. But the idea, when it came out that, you know, the government was working closely with tech platforms, you know, it became this question of, like, who actually has the power? Because it's like, okay, the government obviously has a tremendous amount of power in what it's like because it has law enforcement powers, subpoena power, things like that. So too do tech companies. And it's just sort of like, you know, if you're, if you're, if they're in a partnership and that partnership involves the government saying, Hey, like, why don't you cool it with, you know, allowing the flourishing of what we consider to be misinformation, the power dynamics quickly become quite muddled. I'm actually looking very forward to how the court deals with these allegations. I mean, these were raised in the specific context of like you say, COVID-19 policies and some other things. But the implications could reach pretty far and wide, um, but that's all, that's all still yet to come. The government was clearly concerned about 
this rather expansive injunction and took that case to the Fifth Circuit to try and get it reined in. Uh, What happened there? Well, the Fifth Circuit agreed that the injunction should be halted for the time being, but didn't really otherwise issue any sort of findings or anything, I guess, other than, as I said before, agreeing that the appeal should be expedited. So in shutting down this injunction, the court granted a temporary administrative stay until, quote, further orders of the court. And that, uh, you know, who knows when those will come down, but oral argument is scheduled for August 10th. So that will be quite a show, I imagine. And I will certainly be marking my calendar. We like to end our show with something offbeat and Amber. I was going to say we were going to head south of the border, but that's actually not true. Uh, this involves a, uh, an American company, but we're talking about tacos. Let's, let's, I mean, let's get right down to it. It's time for a fiesta. I'm so excited, guys. <laughs> um, yes. So here's what's going on. Taco John's, which is a Wyoming-based fast food chain, recently agreed to drop trademark registration that it's had for years on the phrase Taco Tuesday. So Taco Bell. Wow. I know. I know. I'm, again, how, very excited how to has, talk about that. How has anyone trademarked it? Any, anyway, we'll get into this. You, we are getting into that exact question. <laughs> so Taco Bell had been fighting to get the registration killed. And the details of the back and forth is just, I mean, chef's kiss. I, I want to tell you all about it. Always great to see a truce in the taco wars. But tell us, please, you, how we're all going to be living moss. Uh, now that the uh, now that this this ugly quarrel is behind us over who has the right to market Taco Tuesday. Well, as I begin this story, I would like to fully disclose, which I believe I've said on Pro Se in years past, Taco Bell is probably my favorite fast food restaurant. Yeah, I, I unabashedly love it, and wish they'd send me some merch because can I say that enough on the show and and it's get a- <laughs> some fun Taco Bell merch? I don't know. Amber is not above holding out her hat for Taco Bell merch. Uh, was probably yeah. my favorite, too, when I was, like, in high school. And I don't say that to sound like a snob. I'm sure I would still love it. I just, like, I cannot do that to myself anymore. Alex, you're a better man than I. But let me tell you what's going on here. Okay, yeah. so Taco Bell had launched a petition with the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board in May looking to cancel the registration for Taco John's Taco Tuesday. Taco John's has held that for decades. And it's here that I would like to point out that Taco John's owner is Spicy Seasonings, LLC. Yes. God bless. Lo- God that. bless. What else does Spicy Seasonings own? That is I such didn't a look into that, but I just loved it as like a name company. of the holding parent company. Yep. So for years, Taco John's and also a New Jersey-based Gregory Hotel, Inc. were the only restaurants that could use Taco Tuesday, based on this trademark registration, on phrases for restaurant services. Gregory Hotel is actually still fighting against Taco Bell's move to cancel their mark. So that one's ongoing. How has Taco Bell gone about getting this canceled? I mean, so, this is also just so hilarious. <laughs> cancel culture <laughs> strikes again. It. I mean, come <laughs> the on. The one time we really 100% endorse cancel culture. Um, <laughs> so here's what happened. Uh, as you kind of pointed out, Haley, in the setup to all of this, Taco Bell said Taco Tuesday is a common phrase. And... 
that restaurants and the public and everybody should just be able to use it without worrying about any potential legal action. Taco Bell not only went to the T-Tab for satisfaction here, but also launched a pretty cheeky ad campaign. I don't know if you guys saw it, but it featured LeBron James and it promotes Taco Bleep. So the ad's really fun. LeBron talks about how dumb it is that anyone can own the phrase Taco Tuesday. And every time he says it, it's bleeped. And also his mouth is covered with a little taco emoji every time he says it. Yeah, well, he for a while, he would just, I remember he would get on Instagram and just like he, I mean, he, he appears to love tacos and him and his family would <laughs> Who like, among us? have you know? <laughs> Taco Tuesday at their house. And he would like post and say it's Taco Tuesday. And it wasn't clear ever if he was like making money off of that. Lord knows he doesn't need it. But yeah, I remember him getting involved in this. I believe it started organically, Alex, that he just was known for loving Taco Tuesday. He's, he's, and he's, the he's married to the folks. game. He's married to the game and he's married to Taco. <laughs> you know what? I've never <laughs> liked so an athlete pure. more. But so yeah, pure. I think Taco Bell saw his enthusiasm and thought, what better a spokesperson to go up against this Taco Tuesday registration? So in addition to that, Taco Bell also sponsored a change.org petition over it. So yeah. I think this whole thing is very funny to me. At one point in the battle over the phrase, Taco Bell said it was trying to liberate the phrase for restaurants nationwide. And that, quote, when tacos win, we all win. Wow. The hero we didn't know we needed. I've always known Taco Bell was a hero. I'm (laughs) telling you. I want to give a shout out to whatever advertising company Taco Bell uses, because this all is very smart and effective advertising. And their commercials in general are, I, I similarly, I'm same with Alex. I've got to avoid, I've got to avoid the bell Can't these days. It. You guys it's, are really disappointing just, me. I'm low-key obsessed I with. I regret it every time. Okay, so, Haley, you brought up <laughs> that their um, advertising is good and whatever. I'm low-key obsessed with how their sauce packets have little phrases on them. All right. Well, It's sort of like um, when you get those conversation hearts at, at Valentine's Day that say Amber, stuff to you. Have some self-respect. I mean, <laughs> she's, she's just saying, we, we love these sauce packets, folks. I will say, oh, you know what? You know the last time I had a Taco Bell? I think it was, listen to me, had a Taco a Bell. A Taco Bell. Uh, <laughs> okay, old man. Was, um, I think it was actually in the early stages of the pandemic when stuff started reopening in New York again. I picked my wife up from work and I think we just like, I was like, shoot, the Taco Bell's open again. I mean, what, oh, what yeah. better way to heal us from this, from this <laughs> worldwide trauma than to I'm get a Mexican you, pizza up in this bee? To quote Taco Bell, when tacos win, we all win. Tacos en martes. Has anybody talked to the Chihuahua about this? Do we know if he Quiero's trademark piece? Oh my God. I'm sure he's thrilled. Wait, wait, hold up. Did LeBron replace the Chihuahua? <laughs> the Chihuahua's been gone for a no, while. No, he's been guys. gone for a Just while. Just letting you I know. Uh, but I do think this is an excellent battle to have settled in this way. Yeah. Let's see if that New Jersey hotel also relents so that then we really can all start saying Taco Tuesday at will, everywhere. Peace in our taco time. That's what I say. Thank you guys for indulging me in this Taco Bell adventure. Really appreciate it. And also for being with me this week. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. And also Haley. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our contributing reporters this week, Jessica Corso, Andrew Carpen, and Adam Lidget. 
Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, definitely leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, that's when you go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.